I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. All right. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison. I'm here with Andy Johnson. How are you, Andy? I'm I'm doing wonderful. Yeah? Yeah. In spite of the snowstorms? Snow and, and uh, you know, lack of child care. They're the two things that the, the modern uh, modern parent has to deal with at this time of year. Yeah. No, especially recently. All right. So uh, why don't we get right into it so you can get back to that. Um we're talking today about Perry Maxwell, the golf course architect who worked uh, mostly in, I don't know, would you call it the Midwest? Would you call it the South? I'm not really sure what to call it. I think it. it's the Great Plains, right? The Great sure, Plains. Yeah. Texas is its own place. So, you know, we, re- we can just refer to it as Texas, right? They don't, you know, when you think about it, they aren't the Southeast. They aren't the South. They aren't the Southwest. They're just Texas. They aren't the Great Plains. Uh, Texans will love to hear that, too. <laughs> Because that that's I think that's the belief in Texas as well. I'm playing I'm playing to the audience here. <laughs> yeah. There you go, Texans. All right. So Perry Maxwell, of course, is the is the architect behind Southern Hills, Prairie Dunes, Old Town Club. Um, great architect. We've talked about him before on the podcast, but today's episode goes a little deeper into it. We talked to Chris Clauser, who's a historian who has done a lot of work on Perry Maxwell, including a book called The Midwest Associate. And then we also talked to Colton Craig, who's an architect based in Oklahoma, who has studied Perry Maxwell a great deal as well. But uh, first, we wanted to mention that we have a new event opening for registration. This is going to be The Banker at Dornick Hills, and it opens for registration at noon Eastern time on Monday, February 7th. Um, One thing that we should note is that our events page has been relocated to Golf Genius. This is going to make a lot of things a lot easier and smoother. Uh, But in order to find this page, you can just go to thefriedegg.com and find on the top banner the word events. And if you click on that, you'll be taken right to our Golf Genius page. On mobile, if you're on a cell phone, you can find it by going to browse topics on thefriedegg.com, then events and all events, and it will take you to the same place. And then we'll also put direct links in the Friday newsletter on Friday, February 4th and Monday, February 7th. So we're just making sure to get people there in the first place. Just note everybody that there's a new registration process. There's a new home for this stuff. Once you're in the new events home, You'll be able to see all of the information about the banker and about our other events when we when we post them. Um, A registration button will appear when registration opens. And one important note is that during registration, participants are required to provide their full name, email information, billing information, shirt size, GIN number or handicap index. And so just make sure that you have all of that information. Important if you don't have a handicap index, mm-hmm. if you're you know part of the resistance of of handicap system, and you're included in this in this oh. uh, community of of very brave people. I correct? just haven't haven't gotten around to signing up for one. Since no, I nobody can handicap dox golf. you. The only well, the only way I, what reason I would have it is I needed it for tournaments. You know. Yeah. Right. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Listen, you don't need to handicap dox me. You just doxed me. <laughs> um, the, uh, but anyways, just put a, your estimate in there. And we'll we'll crutch it down. And, and listen, don't be a sandbagger. We'll, we'll we'll boot you out if you if you shoot way under your your alleged index and you don't include your index. Everlasting shame is not worth it. 
uh, just, <laughs> just ask about what happened at our Soul Park event uh, last year. And is, uh, is this a handicapped podcast and not a Perry Maxwell podcast? We have we've we've gotten. I mean, people who really want the Perry Maxwell podcast, I, I under, I'm going to put a a little timestamp in the show notes so that you can just skip ahead to it. But Dorna Kills is important because it's Perry Maxwell's uh, home course. Is his first yes. design. Um, that's the banker. It's in Ardmore, Oklahoma. It's an hour and a half from Dallas Airport. I flew down to Dallas. Like you can fly down. And, and be up there in a jiffy. Um, it's also an hour and a half from Oklahoma City. If you can get a directed Oklahoma City, I hear that's a really easy airport and drive to navigate. And, um, you know, we will have golf available on Sunday as well as Tuesday also. So you could make a, a couple day trip of it on top of the 36 holes you get with the event. This should be a really cool, unique event at an incredible golf course. Now, uh, yes, so Dorna Hills is Perry Maxwell's first golf course. He built it on his property. We're going to go into greater depth about Dorna Hills uh, later in this podcast with uh, with Chris Clauser. But one thing that people should know is that it has been freshly restored. So Tom Doak's team at Renaissance Golf Design was in there over the past year, year and a half, restoring the Perry Maxwell design there. And basically, this event offers a first look at that. Yeah, the the club's doing their opening day, opening grand open reopening ceremonies the weekend before. So it is, uh, it's going to be, it's wonderful. I went down in December and saw it, and it, it's a really cool property. It's got some really neat golf holes, some great greens, but you know the the cliff hole, the sixteenth, the par five is. It's one of the most jaw-dropping holes that I've ever seen in my life. So that is a that is a neat hole. It's a neat golf course and uh, should be a great event. Yep, special place. So the banker at Dornick Hills. The rest of this podcast isn't all about Dornick Hills. It is really about Perry Maxwell, about his life, and about his courses. So I hope you enjoy it. So Chris Clauser, you wrote the book, The Midwest Associate. You are, uh, I, I think there's very little argument, the foremost Perry Maxwell expert in the world. So I wonder how you got interested in Perry Maxwell. So I got interested with Perry Maxwell when I started uh, researching just the history of a golf course I was going to go see um, and found out that he was the architect. Um, I was going to go up and see Crystal Downs. So I was just curious, and I found out, oh, it's Alistair McKenzie and Perry Maxwell. I thought, okay, well, I've heard that name because I'd heard it associated with Southern Hills and Prairie Dunes. And so I thought, well, let me see what else he's done. And I uh, started researching him a little bit and then um, got in touch with his family, uh, his daughter and his granddaughter specifically. And after talking with them, I don't know, a Saturday afternoon for two or three hours, they sent me a box full of all sorts of stuff, uh, paraphernalia, newspaper clippings, his, family history type stuff, uh, things from uh, Press Maxwell, Perry's son, uh, just a lot of stuff that, that I was I started going through. I thought, okay, maybe I can maybe I can do a magazine article about this guy. Uh, I didn't do a lot of writing back then, but a little, and uh, started. Started thinking about, okay, magazine article. And then the more and more I researched, the more and more I found, the more and more I wrote. And I was, it turned into a book project. So it just kind of captured you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his story specifically. I mean, after researching a little bit, I was like, well, nobody knows anything about this guy really from a, from an architectural standpoint, because the people I talked to, they were either, uh, convinced that he only did like a handful of courses or he was really just McKenzie's associate and didn't really do anything on his own or just, um, so I was like, okay, well, that's definitely a story I could tell. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about Perry Maxwell's early years? Where did he come from in the world? So he was born in Princeton, Kentucky, grew up there, um, after he graduated from high school, he started uh, trying to find some other place to go because he uh, suffered from consumption or tuberculosis or whatever you want to call it. So he started looking for places to go. He attended some college 
in Kentucky, some in Florida, and kind of was an itinerant for a few years. Um, and then he found a place uh, in Oklahoma, Ardmore. Basically settled in Ardmore with his new wife there, and they bought this massive piece of property. It was an old poor farm just on the north edge of Ardmore, which is where Dornick Hills sits today. And he became kind of a, he was really involved with the community in Ardmore. Uh, he became a cashier at a bank and went through the whole corporate ladder, essentially, at this bank and became a vice president. He was massively involved with, like, the church he was in, uh, several community organizations. He basically did a Almost everything except it become mayor in Ardmore at some point. So, and then his wife passed away and he decided, okay, I need to do something else because he had just retired from the banking industry and he needed something to generate revenue. And this was um, pre depression. So, um, based on a recommendation his wife actually had made to him at one point. Uh, was to go into golf and try to become a golf course architect. Up to then, he had been, uh, from an athletic standpoint, he was actually a tennis champion in, in the state of Oklahoma, won several awards, um, was actually ahead of the State Tennis Association at one point. So his body started to show wear and tear from that, and he got older, essentially, and all those things that come along with old age and middle age. Uh, took took their toll, so he jumped into a new profession after he retired and started doing uh, golf course design and started studying people like Charles Blair McDonald and Donald Ross and going around the country and then decided, okay, I'm going to build a golf course on my own property. And that turned out to be Dornick Hills. This was Perry Maxwell's own property. At this point, you know, Perry Maxwell was, it sounds like, a, a fairly wealthy man. Um, and he came from wealth as well. He he grew up in a, a fairly well-heeled family, is my understanding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you would really consider them extremely wealthy. I mean, they were, they were, they were well off. Um, but uh, obviously, going to Ardmore... Um, being involved with the banking industry in Ardmore during the oil boom uh, in, in the southern Oklahoma and northern Texas area. Uh, he received some benefit from that. Um, he inherited from his uncle uh, some sizable sums of money. And you would, yeah, he would be pretty wealthy in, in today's standard, uh, especially in a community like Ardmore, which Actually, Ardmore was a very wealthy community. It was uh, at one point in time in that oil-rich time frame, they had more uh, millionaires per capita than any other city in the country. Uh, and they also made a lot of money off of railroads and cotton industry in that area. So, Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was way out in what would have been at the time the middle of nowhere, but it was a financial center of the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so in any case, uh, Perry Maxwell starts building this golf course on his own land, what would become Dornick Hills. But at first it was a very different looking and different sized golf course than it is today. Right. So could you tell me a little bit about what this course was at first? Yeah. So originally he built four holes that were really close to where his house was on the property. Um, basically he could walk out his back door, tee off on the first hole, come back up in the second hole, go out to the road on the third hole and come back on the fourth. And, and three of those, the first three holes are kind of the layout of what's there today for holes 10, 11, and 12. Okay. Kind of, not exactly, but close enough that you could say those are kind of what he was looking at at the time. And, um, there's stories of his family, uh, his daughter, Dora told me stories of the kids going out and actually picking up rocks out of the, out of the what would have been fairways and picking those up and using them to build walls and stuff like that. So started out with that four hole course. It was really rough, just laid out over the property, and then and then he uh, expanded that to basically a nine hole design, which is what opened in 1914 
um, as the official Dornick Hills Country Club. And then Maxwell decided, okay, I want to expand this even further. So he, he expanded it and took up part of the property that actually went out to the dairy farm that they had out there and took part of that property as well. Um, and then when he expanded it to 18 holes, that's when he actually also incorporated grass greens to be the first grass greens in the state of Oklahoma. This was a sand green territory at the moment. Yeah, sand and oil green territory. Very hard to do proper greens in this uh, climate and on those soils. Yeah, and, and that stretched from when he opened the nine-hole course to when they built 18 holes. He had gone around to a lot of places around the southern United States trying to research what kind of grass to use because he really wanted to have gra- grass greens if he was going to have an 18-hole course. He wanted it to be a proper course. And um, so that's when he he went out to places in North Carolina and Florida, and he met the likes of Donald Ross at that point in time, and and then came back and used this bent grass that uh, was really popular at that point in time to seed and grow on warmer climate courses. Now he was also, in addition to doing kind of agronomic research. He was also doing some architectural research. He mentioned earlier that he was influenced by Charles Blair MacDonald. My understanding is that Dornick Hills, the way that it developed, sort of reflected what Perry Maxwell was learning along the way. And so could you talk about some of the trips that he took, what he saw, and then how he implemented those ideas on his own land, on his own course? Yeah, so the... The first thing he did was he went out uh, when he decided he was going to do this occupation. Uh, he decided to go see Charles Blair McDonald because he was influenced by the famous Scribner's article about National Golf Links and wanted to go see the father of American golf course architecture. And uh, so he went out, uh, met McDonald, uh, studied a little bit with him and uh, came back with some mind with a mindset of okay, this is how you build a golf course because that's the only person you talk to. So, um, so he started laying out uh, these original nine holes at uh, Dornick Hills, and some of them involve some of the template con- concepts that McDonald used at National Golf Links. Uh, a little bit of like eleven hole um, on the tenth, the null hole concept is like the fourteenth a little bit. 17th was probably a little bit of something like that. So, so he incorporated some of these concepts in his uh, golf course on the, on the original nine holes. And then when he went, wanted to expand to 18, he's like, he needed to go tour some other stuff. So he started touring the South, uh, met Donald Ross. And I think maybe not so much with Dornick Hills, although I think you could see it because I think. Um, if you think about the property at Dornick Hills, there's probably not a lot of different options in how he could have routed the place. But he did use like the higher elevations to establish greens and tees, go through, play through the valleys, uh, down to the lower elevations and back up. And which is a similar concept of what I've seen on a lot of Ross courses that I've, I've played. Yeah, the, the high and dry uh, idea, yeah. right? The tees need to be high. The greens need to be high. You can play through the valleys because that it's not as important to drain those areas. Um, and so that's it's low cost, basically, a low cost way to build and then maintain a golf course. Right. And that is one of the big things that Maxwell is about, low cost and building a golf course. I mean, he was very proud of the fact that he could um, go out and build a golf course probably for cheap cheaper than anybody else that he was competing against when he would go out and bid on places. If he ever had competition, uh, there were a few places like hard scrabble and, uh, or not hard scrabble Hillcrest in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. He had a little bit of competition there and that was how he won the bid. He was the cheapest, cheapest bid and ended up building a really nice golf course. So, um, and then after, after doing Dornick Hills and getting that really going and, he did a tour of Scotland and England. Uh, not so much. I think he visited a few places in England, but it was mostly to go to Scotland uh, and see uh, St. Andrews. And, and that's where he met Mackenzie. Um, and then, so I think he brought him some, some concepts from Scotland as well. I mean, I think he's got some holes that um, you would argue are very, very inspired by the winds 
of Kansas and Oklahoma and trying to incorporate that into his design a little bit. Uh, even, uh, even the actual layout of the course, the uh, original design at a place like Vinker Memorial in, at Iowa State, um, there was a couple holes that were built to mimic the first and 18th at St. Andrews. So, um, so he took those lessons, uh, the double green at Old Town there. So. Yeah. That that houses seventeen and eight, I believe, at Old yeah. Old Town. Yeah, spectacular. Um, now, getting back to Dornick Hills, real quick, quick before we move on. By the time he finished that course, what do you think was distinctive about it? What were some of the features that would stand out to people if they played it and were remembering it? Oh, yeah, that's that's something that I saw at Dornick Hills. That's pretty unique. Well, I think number one would be the cliff hole. Um, the cliff hole is 16th of par five. It probably was the longest hole in the state at the time. And then you have to conquer this cliff face that goes, I don't know, 40 feet up in the air. And if you, I mean, it's probably, it was nothing that was seen up until that time and definitely in Oklahoma and in most of the, that part of this, the country, I'm sure nobody else saw anything like that. Maybe somebody up in the Northeast where they have a lot more rocky terrain and the grass greens, obviously, uh, were new. Uh, they were big change in the mindset of how to build a golf course uh, in that time frame in Oklahoma. And then the course was very difficult. It, it's funny because Maxwell joked that he had the course record for a time being. Well, he was the first guy that played it once it opened. So, <laughs> so it didn't speak to how good of a golfer he was. He was a decent golfer, but like Charlie Coe would come down and actually struggle to break par at Dornick Hills. And he was a well-known amateur champion around the country. It would probably stay known as the toughest golf course in the state until Maxwell probably built Southern Hills. And then that definitely eclipsed it. All right. So Perry Maxwell, up until, I guess, when when you sort of started doing your research and, and maybe when Old Town was restored, I'm not exactly sure when Perry Maxwell's reputation started to ascend again i mean prairie dunes has been well known as a great golf course for a while but it wasn't necessarily considered among the very top echelon of of american golf courses until maybe the past couple of decades for a long time people just knew perry maxwell as alistair mckenzie's midwest associate and uh you mentioned that maxwell encountered mckenzie on one of his tours of scotland how did that relationship develop from there? How did Maxwell ultimately become his associate in that area? Yeah. So when they were in, when he was in Scotland, they, they made the decision to, because Mackenzie was ready to move to America and start working here. And he knew he needed at least one person to be a partner when he came over here, because he didn't know anything about America really, other than what he'd read in press clippings and stuff like that. So he had, Happened to be introduced to this guy from Oklahoma, wherever that was for Alistair McKenzie. He probably had no clue. Um, but Maxwell had one thing that he didn't. He had contacts. And contacts with money. So um, McKenzie and him, while he was in Scotland, I think formed this partnership so that when he would come over, Maxwell would be able to introduce him. So Maxwell had a contract in Philadelphia at the Melrose Country Club and immediately got McKenzie onto the contract. It was like McKenzie's entry into the country. It was celebrated and all this stuff. And and then they built their partnership and they got several courses pretty quickly across the country in Oklahoma City, the Nickel Hills course, which is now Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club, um, Crystal Downs, University of Michigan. These things kind of start steamrolling and they they – Got a lot of courses right away in the in the under contract, and um, but once he got over here, he and Maxwell actually formed a really nice friendship. Uh, they constantly wrote letters to each other. I, when I was talking with his family, his daughter remembered a couple times when McKenzie actually came to Ardmore and actually had dinner with him at the table, and and they went on a tour of golf courses around the state of Oklahoma with uh, Perry and. Um, press went with them, I think, from what people have said. So, and then McKenzie, uh, Maxwell actually went out to California when McKenzie was working on Cypress Point. It's the only time Maxwell ever went to California. He went once, went out there to see his friend and watch golf course he was working on out there in Monterey. And, uh, and he saw Cypress Point. 
pretty good one to knock off when you when you go out to California. Yeah, yeah, it's the one thing you wanted to go out there and see. And there's some <laughs> argument that maybe he did some work out there with him. I don't know. Maybe he helped build a bunker or something. But yeah, so they were friends. And I think it was out of that friendship that he also continued to do the work to, at Ohio State because that was a contract that they also took on. Um, and I think he felt a sense of obligation to do that work. And then uh, I think that friendship and that partnership led to him getting on at Augusta eventually just because he was associated with McKenzie. Um, that obviously opened the door for him. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Perry Maxwell did a substantial amount of work at Augusta National in the late 30s and early 40s, about that time frame. Yeah, 37, 38, and a little bit in 39, I think, are the dates that most people agree on. Um, he did work on, I think most people agree he did work on a double-digit number of holes. I mean, it could be argued anywhere between 11 to 14 holes on the course. Maybe he might have touched all of them by just doing some little work here and there, but right. his noticeable work and it's probably on 11 or 12 of the holes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. Um, getting back to the partnership with McKenzie, what kind of influence, I know it might be hard to tell this necessarily, but what kind of influence do you think McKenzie had on Maxwell? What, what, what is visible from McKenzie's style that Maxwell started to incorporate? So I think the immediate thing is um, some artistry with the bunkering. Um, most people think of, when they think of Maxwell bunkers, they actually think of the wrong thing. They think of those big moonscape type things that used to be like Southern Hills and other places like that. Those weren't even Maxwell bunkers. So, Southern were, Hills had those saucers with the yeah. really crisp edges. It was sort of Augustified a little bit. You know, it was like the like the modern Augusta there for a while with the bunkers. But that's that's not what they were originally for sure. Yeah, a lot of people think of that as a Maxwell bunker. That's not. His bunkers were a lot more rugged. Um, like he just basically took a plow and cut into the ground and set up made the bunker that way and dug it out and then uh and gave it some irregular shaping um i think he did um give him a little bit more of a mindset of getting away from this this template driven style that he had studied under mcdonald uh and trying to just fit to fit the landscape and have a little bit more creativity in how he created the golf course. A good example is I think of like the seventh hole at old town uphill par four. Yeah. And I just don't know that. And it goes into the side of the hill. So whereas I think a Maxwell pre McKenzie would try to go directly into the hill hmm. and go up it. Um, so I think that's when he started using those side Hill lies a lot more, uh, which is really prevalent at um, Southern Hills. Yeah, and and at Old Town, the the tilts to the, some of those fairways on the edges of the property for sure. Yeah. you know, like those are. A <laughs> yeah, big deal. I think that was that was probably the other big thing is how he routed his courses to to kind of go alongside the slopes of the terrain as opposed to directly into them. And hmm. you know, it's something that always uh, delights me about Perry Maxwell's career. And the roster of courses that he worked on is that you have everything from Augusta National and from clubs like Southern Hills and Old Town to just really small, humble local courses. I'm not sure that any architect, past or present, has had such a diversity of classes of courses that they've worked on. I mean, maybe there's a few. But um, could you talk a little bit about the range of projects that Maxwell took on? Yeah, I mean, he was he was very prolific in the 1920s and 30s in Oklahoma. Um, he would go to little towns like Pawhuska, Ponca City. You could probably get a golf course with that starts with every letter of the alphabet based on the towns he went to in yeah. Oklahoma. I mean, it was... There's just amazing number of golf courses. And he would go out and in a day route nine holes. And he would either, depending on the availability of his crew, he would either have them build the course, like after he got the contract, or he would hire, I mean, leave the plans with them and have them hire somebody to build it. And he would come back and consult because everything was in driving distance for him. 
So it was like he would take on like one or two big projects every year. And and I think he recognized that these small town clubs don't have to be Augusta Nationals. They can just be, okay, I want like pretty decent greens, uh, challenging layout. He didn't put a lot of bunkers in these places. Um, so it was really simple and efficient and People enjoyed the golf, and he was he was the father of golf in Oklahoma. I mean, essentially, for all intents and purposes. And if they got a Perry Maxwell course in Blackwell, Oklahoma, well, hey, they were on the they were on the same field playing field as somebody in Oklahoma City or Tulsa that was also playing a Maxwell course. So it wasn't like they were they, the people in those small towns felt like they were connected to something that was that was pretty cool, right? Now, just to piece together the timeline here, the Mackenzie Maxwell commissions, there were basically five big ones. You you mentioned them earlier. Um, The last one was Ohio State, which I believe Maxwell finished after Mackenzie died in 1934. But a, a couple of factors got in the way of Mackenzie and Maxwell doing more courses. One was obviously the Depression. You know, from 1929 forward, there just weren't as many golf course projects out there. And then in addition to that, Mackenzie died in 1934 and and no more collaboration at, at, at that point. And so Maxwell was then on to another phase of his career. But it actually turned out to be a kind of high watermark for Perry Maxwell. He, be, he built many of his most famous courses in the mid and late 1930s in a time when most golf architects were just not working basically at all or, or desperately trying to find work here and there in random places, Maxwell was able to, able to kind of thrive. What, what do you think allowed him to be so successful during the Depression? Well, I think one thing is that uh, a lot of his clients were in the um, petroleum industry, mm-hmm. and that was kind of insulated from the whole Depression. I mean, everybody still needed oil. So the, the Phillips, the whoever else, they were still making money hand over fist at the time. Yeah. Tulsa, Oklahoma, still kind of riding high. Yeah. So they were, they were a little insulated from the whole depression era thing. So, um, so I think that's why he got commissions like for Southern Hills. I mean, he knew the Phillips family. So they made sure he was the guy that did the course. Um, so that was some of it. The other thing is, is, like I said before, he was very much um, budget conscious about building golf courses. And I think when he got to the point post McKenzie, I think that was when he really reached his, his highest point as a, as a architect from a skill knowledge and um, just running, running across ideal sites. I mean, something like Prairie Dunes, I mean, you couldn't dream of a better place to build a golf course. Yeah, it's in Hutchinson, Kansas. And the owner was the Carey family, which was rich off of salt mines. So I think it was just getting the right owners, the right sites, being at the peak of his powers, so to speak. And he got a lot of those high-profile jobs at that time because of that. Um, but he was still very productive with the small-town projects, too, because if people were making money in Tulsa, well, they were making money in Muskogee and they were making money in Oak City. Uh, so it was just, there was a lot of places still ma- still were kind of the periphery of that industry that were still making money too. So then another big interruption in golf course construction happens in the 1940s with World War II. Right. Things stopped for a while. But then after the war, Perry Maxwell is still alive at this point and, and, and still kicking and, and still taking on projects with his son, Press, more and more involved. Um, and so could you just give me a quick thumbnail sketch of the latest part of Perry Maxwell's career? Yeah. So after World War II, his son came back from serving in the war, wanted to be part of the family business, and they uh, started taking on contracts uh, and they started in the local area, but um, kind of ran out because of, t- of places to go, because the only connections that seemed to be wanting to build go- golf courses right after World War II were actually like military bases. So they did a, a series of those uh, in Oklahoma and Texas. 
Uh, and some of that was through contacts that press had. Maxwell then also started going out through the southeast. He did some renovations like in Florida, and they built a course in uh, Point Clear, Alabama, now by, down by Mobile. Um, that was a resort course, essentially, uh, Lakewood Country Club. And then uh, they did build some other courses in the Oklahoma area and um, in Enid. They built this place called Oakwood Country Club, which was really nice. And so they did a few of those. And then they also went down to the met- the Dallas metro area and did some courses down there. And one of them was a place called um, Oak Cliff, which hosted the Dallas Open for several years on the PGA Tour. Now known as the Golf Club of Dallas, right? Yes. Yeah. I think it's actually owned by a church down there now. Huh. But uh, it was a real, it was at the time, it was a really nice golf course. Uh, they built another place there that um, they didn't finish before Maxwell passed away that Press kind of finished the design of, the construction of at River Hills that's no longer existing. And, and they did a place uh, in Oklahoma City called Lake Hefner, um, which, is a totally different golf course now. So, um, but yeah, it was, uh, they did a lot of golf courses together. I mean, probably 15 to 20, maybe, uh, Omaha country club. They did some renovations there. Um, it's one of the last places he worked. So, um, yeah, they were very productive. And then, uh, his son kind of took that and springboarded into his own career once his father passed away. Right. And what year did Perry Maxwell die? 52. 52. Right. Colton, you're a man that has seen a lot of Perry Maxwell courses, have has studied a lot of uh, Maxwell's architecture. Why should the general public care about Perry Maxwell? If you want to do a Mount Rushmore of Golden Age golf architects, if you have to narrow it down to four, in my opinion, you got to go McDonald for obvious reasons. Rainer's with McDonald, let's call that. Rainer Banks, McDonald, Tillinghast, Ross, and then McKenzie, right? And so you have these four mammoths, these four uh, giants of the game. And then Maxwell was about 15 years behind them. So he was an early contemporary to the Golden Age. And I think he largely is responsible for the transition from almost overly manufactured look to almost like flex the muscle, muscle and brawn of American ingenuity of the Industrial Revolution to uh, something that's more subtle and more closer to home to the game of golf. And his clients ranged from as wealthy as you could imagine to as poor as you could imagine. So that influence and that style and that approach, I think, is I think it's an important piece of golf's history. Um, tell us about your Maxwell journey. You're, you're from Oklahoma, and I believe you embarked on a mission to play every Perry Maxwell course? Or walk. Yeah, sometimes the super exclusive places, asking for a round is inappropriate for someone of my access. But, um, you know, I, I just kind of was looking at it one day on Google Earth, and I started just kind of mapping it out. There's half his body of work is here in Oklahoma and the other half is just kind of scattered throughout the Midwest. And I started trying to schedule, like, how could I plan this there? How could I get there? And then I started to realize, like, each course is like three hour drives away from each other. Like, what if I just made a giant loop and took two weeks? Mm-hmm. What What were some of the most memorable experiences, you know, walks, see, you know, see them, play them, whatever. But what were some of the most memorable experiences from that, from that journey? It, you know, this is going to sound so cheesy, but it really is just meeting the people going to Arkansas, Arkansas city country club or Arkansas city country club and the club presidents getting off of a triplex to come shake your hand. You know, they're running a 18 hole golf course on like a less than $200,000 budget. But I guess like the best memory, I guess, is birdie in number two at Prairie Dunes. It was a tough pin and I stuck it like within three feet. And that's, I think, one of the best par threes probably in the world. That playing Crystal Downs with Mike DeReeves was really cool. He's awesome. And yeah, probably probably that birdie in number two and then playing Crystal Downs with, with Mike. He's a good man. 
Were there any uh, courses that, you know, you know, whether it be, say, sand greens or, you know, just like kind of obscure experiences that you remember most? Like I, uh, you know, for example, I, I think about around at Northwoods all the time, the Mackenzie and the Redwoods that isn't at all the best Mackenzie. It's hard to even call the Mackenzie today, but it's just the setting and the place really resonated with me. Yeah, um, there's a lot of them. Neosho is a municipal now. It was a country club. Neosho Country Club um, is one of the more dramatic pieces of topography he ever routed on out in Missouri. And then Bristow Country Club between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Those are kind of like the, what you would call a hidden gem. Honestly, like most of his body of work is hidden gems. Um, and then he has like kind of the mid-level clubs that are really nice too. Like Topeka Country Club is really cool. And he built in 37 right after he did uh, Southern Hills and Prairie Dunes. You know, it's that, that's one of those places where you just want to lay down a blanket and have a picnic. He, he really did. He really did nail the Parkland look, which I think is something that's being attacked a little bit. But I think it's also important that American golf looks like American golf. I think one of the things that I, I find the uh, most pleasing about his designs is just how they kind of embody where they are, right? It's not trying to bring a different look to an area. It's the design fits in with the look of the area, if that makes is He's not imposing his will. Well, he was an economist, right? I mean, he was a banker, uh, so he was all about return on investment. And so he designed in an economic way that... Um, you know, he didn't move a whole lot of dirt. He also happened to come back to the clubhouse as much as possible, which pre-Bevcart, I don't know if that was an economic play there to try to get people to, like, come back to the club more. But he did it, like, almost every routing comes back to the clubhouse multiple, multiple times. I, I noticed that, like, a lot of his courses kind of situate on, like, a high hill, and then he plays off the hill and back up to the hill a lot. Is that something you noticed when you saw all the courses? Yeah. Um, I think it's probably not Southern Hills. It works because it's such a high hill. And the only way you can really get off of it is off the first tee. But, you know, when you got members with egos, when they're going to build a clubhouse, they want to put it on the high point. That's just what's going to happen. So... Pretty much that's what a lot of his courses have, yeah. Which isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It does get repetitive, though. What were some other common themes that you found with his designs? You know, bunker design-wise, earlier in his career, he was more of a grass-faced guy. And then as he kind of got more involved with McKinsey, he started to get a little bit more wild and creative. But then kind of post-World War II, he'd started to do more of just like closer to what you like just the clean oval bunker that you kind of see at augusta national today with augusta national he, he's obviously heavily involved with the work that was done after shortly after it opened obviously like the 10th hole moving that green up to the ridge from the punch bowl where mckenzie had it next to that bunker was a maxwell change and you know, I think like that, that's a, that's like a perfect example of a, of a very Maxwell hole where you tee off from a ridge, play down into a valley and play back up to a ridge. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. With Maxwell and, and playing all, and seeing all these courses, were there, you know, I, I don't want to use the word template hole because this is in no way the way Rainer or McDonald used uh, template holes, but were there common hole designs um, like you see with other architects? I think, I think you just kind of put the nail on the head as far as the fall to a climb, which my favorite golf holes do that anyways. You just kind of see it all and it just kind of falls and then, you know, and then it kind of rises back and you almost, you almost end up where you started elevation wise. He did that a lot. And a lot of times he would bring up, bring a hole back home early on, like the fourth hole or the third hole for almost like playoff reasons. He was heavily influenced by the old course. He was heavily influenced by National Golf Links, heavily influenced by McKenzie. But it's, you know, it's hard to categorize types of holes he designed. If you were going to put together a list of, like, must-see Maxwell courses, what would be on that? 
Well, the obvious ones, right? Um, Southern Hills, Prairie Dunes, Old Town Club for sure. You know, I, I, I'm partial to Topeka Country Club. I think that's a special place. And then there's just, there's other cool places like McPherson Country Club just north of, of Prairie, Prairie Dunes. Dunes. I've heard that it's a really cool spot. Yeah, it is. It really is. And, um, you know, oh, what's the place out there by Chicago? Rochelle. Rochelle Fairways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, You've been there, right? I've been there, yeah. And those greens are original. Yeah, there. I, it seemed like to me that there was like three or four that were really standout greens. The par five, what is it? The seventh green was really one that I, I kind of well, stared at for a while. Everything's all jacked up now, but the greens are still there. Mm-hmm. So some of them you're playing from like a different angle and it's a different hole. But that's a place that I think could be, a. I don't know, we need to get all over that or something. I saw that the, when I was there, I saw that they had like a renovation plan hung up. That, that, and that may be the case. We may have been too late to the game. Oh, well. I don't know if they got the funding, though. You know, I think there was a uh, they were trying to get it. So it, maybe it, it's, I doubt it's too late. I'm, I'm close enough. I should just drive over there. But um, so so that's where, you know, and then, you know, from a public standpoint, you know, most of these are private clubs. Is there any public uh, Maxwell courses that are or even private ones that are easy to see? Well, let me pull up. Let me pull up some. uh, Let me pull up the pull up the spreadsheet. Oh, yeah. the The golf club of Dallas, which used to be the Oak Cliff Country Club, is a public course. It was. Maxwell's very last design. That's really cool in in South Dallas. What uh, it, what's cool about it? What's uh, what's the unique stuff about about that course? It's it it needs some help. It needs some tree work. It needs some bunker work. It probably needs to renovate their greens. But it's one of those places that again, it just has that Parkland look. And it used to be where the Texas Open was held. So it's like arguably has some of the best history of any Maxwell course you ever worked on. So that's that's probably where most of your listeners can get access to a public Maxwell is the Golf Club of Dallas. And then there's Reynolds Park and, and Winston-Salem, which isn't, yeah, one, isn't 100% Maxwell still, but it's got a lot of Maxwell left. And you see some of the... The real, like, I think the routing genius out there where you just, the twists and turns on a on a pretty severe piece of land. Yeah, Reynolds Park, I, I can't believe I've waited till just now to bring it up. That place is awfully special. Could be one of the best public courses in the country. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And it, it's like, you know, the thing that's nice there is that all they have to do is really look down the street at Old Town as to what it could be. You know, right. it's pretty like it's, uh, you know, it, some of the holes out at Reynolds Park could be more spectacular than some of the best holes at at uh, Old Town Club. You can make a really strong argument that the that the land is better at Reynolds Park than Old Town. And uh, Old Town's got pretty great land, you know, it's pretty good too. It's probably my favorite Maxwell. As I think like in terms of which course is most symbolic of Maxwell that I've played. I think that Reynolds Park or not Re- Old Town Club checks the box. It's just got it's the most fully realized to me. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think it's most fully realized is because it's not fully Maxwell either. Uh, probably the best golf architect ever, in my opinion, Bill Core, came in there and added like fourteen more bunkers. You know, but it works. Yeah. Um, can, so one of the things that you'll commonly hear about Perry Maxwell and when people discuss Perry Maxwell architecture is the idea of the Maxwell roll, Maxwell rolls and greens. Can you explain that? Yeah, I've never really fully agreed with that term where I see where I see the Maxwell rolls are in his fairways and his landing zones. He would he would put the you know buried elephants out there. But the Maxwell I call them more Maxwell pimples where they're like, he's like just sucked up little, you know, he didn't do many plateaus. He did mostly the pins were in the lows. Right. So I guess you could call those rolls, but I think they're more like, you know, they're more their own, it's all their own little anthill. Yeah. You know, Dunlop white, the uh, golf chair at uh, old town club called them muffins. 
which I yeah, have, like the top tops of muffins. Like I, I think that's a good way to describe them. What what impact does that have on on putting and greens versus compared to tiers? Well, again, Maxwell being the practical designer he was, a lot of the reason why he designed greens like that is so they drained better. And what is it because the water would kind of divert in a bunch of different ways off of them? Yeah, exactly. And the last thing you want on your greens whenever it's 100 degrees out is sitting water because it will literally cook the green. Um, so it's important that he didn't have any bird baths being created on his greens. So that's why they all kind of roll off in multiple directions. Um, which I know the punch bowl is like super popular now. Like Maxwell was like the opposite of the punch bowl. <laughs> he, I mean, he designed some places that aren't the best for probably punch bowls also with the, yeah. with the, with the soils and, and everything like, you know, pun- punch bowls work really well when you're on sand. No doubt. He didn't get very many sandy sites, although he does in East Texas at Mount Pleasant country club really cool golf course where it's like the prime example of nine holes from the golden age and nine holes from the middle age, but it's like white sugar sand all around. And that place could be Pinehurst number two. If, if they not, not actually, but they could, they could Pinehurst it up and make it really special out there if, if they have the will to. Yeah. Th- I've seen like old photos of Texarkana country club, which is yes. from a row out there. And it's got that same kind of aesthetic. Right. And that's in East Texas, West Arkansas. Right. Right. Special part of the country. With, uh, with Perry Maxwell, you know, I think, uh, obviously this is a big year and your book's coming out around the PGA championship. What can he tell us about Southern Hills and, and the types of Maxwell things that we should look that are easily identifiable at Southern Hills for people that are going to be watching on TV or going on the ground? Um, yeah, uh, well, it's where I grew up working maintenance and I caddied out there for a little bit. I actually caddied out there for Frank Licklider in the uh, senior PGA last year or this year. No way. That's got to be a story on his, on itself. The blade, yeah, he was awesome. I love, I loved it. <laughs> I loved his intensity. Um, <clears throat> but one thing I guess is look for a really exciting finish. Seventeen and eighteen are the perfect finish par fours back to back. One's a short, tricky one. One's a long, just brute. And I think you're gonna see some just a really exciting finish so 17 and 18 also check out the fairway contours and 13 fairway you know 10 is 10 is probably my favorite hole now out there so gil hands and his team did a unbelievable job out there i'm really proud of how it turned out and some of my friends that get to play out there more often than not are uh they're thrilled with the with the outcome yeah that stretch of 10 11 12 13 is a really neat stretch of holes with like a lot of variety, obviously between the way it kind of shifts along. It's playing in this river Valley and 12, 12 is a hole that I, I felt like most embodied, like Augusta national of all the holes. You said it, you said it already 10, 11, 12, 13, that, that, you know, those, those holes kind of have the similarities uh, to Augusta, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's just that, it's the dramatics of that river valley, you know. Um, I think like it, it just produced such good movement, and the way twelve banks, it's like a long par four that kind of is like it feels like a sister to thirteen at Augusta. No doubt, no doubt. Um, and then thirteen feels like the risk reward nature of it feels like thirteen in a way. Um. So, closing thoughts on on Maxwell. You've got a book coming out. What would you say are the most important things that, that somebody should take away from Perry Maxwell's golf architecture? Just have fun. Uh, meet the members, meet the people who play out there all the time and try to walk. If you can, it's not the middle of the summer and, uh, don't overthink it. Well, so uh, why don't we step back here and, and try to take an overall view of Perry Maxwell's design philosophy, some takeaways from how he built courses. Uh, what would you say are are the main components of the way he approached design? Well, I think the number one was just his 
um, idea of economy uh, on the construction, uh, just lower costs uh, trying to do. He did almost everything through manpower or animal power. I don't think he used hardly any um, powered equipment, which was probably normal for the time frame. I mean, and maybe up until World War II, that was pretty normal anyway, I think. After World War II, maybe they used a little bit more of it, but um, he had his own construction crew. Uh, that he used, uh, had an in-house engineer, his brother-in-law, Dean Woods, that knew how to do build things. So Perry would go out and figure out the easiest routing to build and with his brother-in-law telling him, oh, I can do that or I can't do that. And then, uh, then they would build it with their own people. And then I think the other thing is just some of the practices as far as how he would route a course. I mean, like we talked, I mean, he would keep, Greens and tees at higher elevations, if you could, um, just to help keep them from having water issues and drainage concerns and stuff like that. Drainage was a big deal for him. I mean, you look at a place like Twin Hills, the whole place was routed based on how it was going to drain. And I think that's what every golf course designer did back then, right? They, they were, that was their number one problem. How do you drain a place, especially in the clay of Oklahoma? Well, if you think about it, golf architects today always say we spent so much more on drainage at this place than we did on anything else. And so if you're like Perry Maxwell and you're looking for ways to be efficient, then, of course, one of the main concerns in routing is going to be how is this place going to drain? Because I don't want to spend more on drainage than I do on building the golf course. Right. And they didn't even have irrigation systems back then when he started. So, I mean, he had to figure out a way for the water to get to the course and then how, how it's going to flow through the course. So those things, uh, the, the idea of some template driven, uh, holes that, um, he used throughout his career, whenever he saw a similar situation, he would go back to that mindset of, Oh yeah, I've seen this landform before I can use this type of hole on it. Could you tell me about a couple of those? What were what were a couple of Perry Maxwell templates that somebody might be able to identify if they're watching the PGA Championship or if they go play Old Town or, or something like that? Yeah. So one that I think is almost it's on most of the golf courses I've seen for Perry Maxwell is this. It's like a shortish to mid length par four where you drive out to a plateau and it's got this drop off, and then the greens on the other side of this little valley. Um, the fifth at Dornick Hills is. A great example, there's, a, I mean, the 7th at Crystal Downs is kind of like that, too. Um, although the boomerang greens are totally a McKenzie thing. That's not a Maxwell green by any means. But that idea of how to attack the hole and where you got to drive it. Um, he used that in a lot of places. Um, Hard Scrabble's got one. Hillcrest has one. I mean, there's a lot of places where he ran across that type of template and said, okay, I've got this creek bed. It's probably a dried creek bed that's at the bottom of this of this hill, and he's got a green sitting on the other side. So he's got he's got a template right there. Um, I would say in the second half of his career, he was looking for these dog legs that would bend around the hillside, like the tent at Southern Hills is a good example of that. He built a lot of those, I think, in the second half of his career once he started using that concept of how to route a course using the sides of hills and lies and stuff like that. Um, so I think those are probably two of the more prominent ones. And then he would take ideas like um, the 13th. At, is it the 13th? No, it's the 12th at Southern Hills is very much like the 13th at Augusta in a lot of ways. Um, so I think he was willing to take ideas that he saw and incorporate them over his career too. I don't think he was stuck on doing the same thing over and over again. So if a golf architect today is trying to learn something from Perry Maxwell to apply to 21st century golf course architecture, what do you think they should focus on? I would say focus on his greens. Um, they have, they're unique. I mean, some people think he patterned his greens after McKenzie. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, but I think it, also the other thing is, is you've got to learn to, um, change over your career. I mean, you can't do the same thing over and over again. I mean, if you look at a Maxwell course from the start of his career and look and just kind of track through his career, you can see the way his designs changed and, and ideas about how to build a golf course and what different things to do on a golf course. I think you can, 
I think you just got to learn to adapt and keep pushing yourself to be different in some way and better. Yeah, he he really did roll with the times. You know, if you think about what he lived through and and what his career went through, he really did find ways to build golf courses in kind of three distinct challenging eras between the 20s, the 30s and and the post World War II era for for a few years at least. Yeah, and, and his work, you can you could divide his work into those three areas and say, okay, this is definitely a early Maxwell course, this is a mid-career course, and this is a end-of-career course. Uh, and I think that end-of-career look was probably a little bit, kind of a little bit more plain, because uh, he didn't have a lot of standout designs from that era, but it wasn't anything as dramatic as an Old Town or a Southern Hills or or Prairie Dunes, obviously. So it, it kind of harkened a little bit back to what he did in the early part of his career. And I think the other thing is, is he also had a different style design depending on the type of course he was doing too. I mean, if he was doing a small town course, he had a totally different mindset about how he was going to build the small town course as opposed to this massive national country club type of course. Thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate it. Uh, it was fun talking to you about Perry Maxwell. Yeah. Anytime. time.